everyone, it's James Lindsay. You're listening to the New Discourses podcast, and today I'm going to do some I Told You So. I mean, I don't really want to do an I Told You So podcast, but I want to point you into the direction where it's 2023 now. New year, new agenda. Well, not really. It's the same agenda, but you don't know that it's been cooking for a while and it's been developing for a while. If you listen to the podcast frequently or have been listening, you know that I recently did a four-part series on a document put out by UNESCO that was um, dedicated to the idea, I called it the strange death of the university, and is dedicated to the idea that the university has to remake itself to be an outlet to train young people into being uh, the activists who will accomplish the sustainable development goals of the United Nations Agenda 2030, which, of course, the second you say United Nations Agenda, people immediately think that you're talking about a conspiracy theory, even though literally they've got like a thousand websites about it, detailing it, telling you what it's supposed to be, outlining the 17 goals and the 169 targets in tremendous detail, talking about steps and progress and blah, blah, blah. Number four among them, by the way, is quality education for all. And it gets invoked in all of these kinds of contexts. If you're a regular listener to the podcast, not only did you hear The Strange Death of the University, uh, which I heard a lot of good feedback about, saying that it was some of my better work, uh, but you also probably heard an episode that I did called Can We Trust Social-Emotional Learning? Can We Trust SEL? This isn't the WTF is SEL occult stuff. There's another podcast about the same subject. That was one where I went through a USAID document and another UNESCO document talking about how the the title of the UNESCO document was SEL for SDGs, talking about the fact that social-emotional learning is a primary tool for accomplishing the goals of uh, getting kids to become activists to satisfy the sustainable development goals of the United Nations Agenda 2030. The reason they give is because it helps them overcome cognitive dissonance that their education is about activism and, in fact, into sometimes mutually contradictory or self-contradictory activist aims within those 17 targets or goals, I should say, there's 169 targets. Okay, so... That's another uh, podcast I did where I'm starting to try to tell you something very important, which is that the direction of education in 2023 and 2024 is going to be from bottom to top, pre-K through PhD, K through 12 included, definitely the universities. That was the point of the the, um, Strange Death of the University series that I did. All of it is going to be geared in one direction that looks like it's two directions through social emotional learning. Social emotional learning is going to be the tool to build resilience or resiliency, which is a word we must talk more about. Um, Governors across the United States, governors, wives across the United States are diving into resiliency. Even Casey DeSantis, not a good, not a good look. Either she doesn't know what it is or it's not good. Either way, it's not good. We also have Jim Murphy, I think that's his name, New Jersey. We also have Spencer Cox, Governor Spencer Cox, he, him, uses his pronouns from Utah, putting forth from the National Governors Association a push for youth mental health, which is going to be a Trojan horse into this resiliency program that's going to be used uh, in conjunction with social-emotional learning to do what? To get over kids' cognitive dissonance and emotional stress as they are brainwashed using social emotional learning into achieving the sustainable development goals. So those two big pushes in the 
using social emotional learning to develop the emotional and social resiliency to be brainwashed. Resilience is going to be defined, by the way, in terms of how well the brainwashing sticks. If it's not sticking, you're not resilient, you're fragile. White fragility taught us how they use these words. Uh, but the two directions that are really the same direction are going to be explicitly into the sustainable development goals of Agenda 2030 from the United Nations and into global citizenship. Global citizenship, by the way, is mostly going to be defined in terms of being SDG, Sustainable Development Goal, compliant. And so education over the next two years is going to lurch in that direction. Now, I recently did a podcast interview with... Um, an Australian guy who pretends he's in the center, but he's left. His name's Josh Seps. A lot of people know who he is. And I was telling him about the documents uh, from UNESCO about the university transforming its mission and the SEL for SDGs and how alarming and important this is. And of course, he being a typical uh, 2020s leftist, he can't see how that matters. He can't see. He can't see. It's like I told Stephen Bonnell, a.k.a. Destiny, on stage at the Better Discourses event when he kept saying, I can't see how this is a problem. I can't see. No shit. You can't see a damn thing. You can't see anything. But I can see some things. And what I see is that this lurch isn't just happening at UNESCO. I told Josh. Josh was like, well, what's UNESCO got to do anything? It's only got a budget of $750 million. And I was like, okay. I have a budget of like 75 fucking bucks and you guys are losing your mind over the stuff I'm doing. I mean, maybe it's $750. It's not much. My, I'm on a shoestring here. <laughs> like, and you guys are freaking out about the stuff I'm saying. So maybe them having $750 million, maybe Biden inking us back into being a UNESCO partner should raise your eyebrows. Whatever happens at UNESCO happens in our schools. And the reason is largely because of the teachers associations or the teachers unions, the National Education Association in particular, the NEA, is directly linked up with UNESCO. This isn't even a freaking, like, just go look it up. I mean, for God's sake, it's not that complicated. So UNESCO puts out these initiatives like Comprehensive Sexuality Education, which it created in 2003, to get the entire world on the same page about comprehensive sexuality education, which turns out to be almost all of the gender, almost all of the queer theory, almost all of the weird, very vigorous sexuality or sex education that's happening, showing pornography to children, getting them to talk about body parts from a very young age, blah, blah, blah. This, what UNESCO lays out turns out to be what states like the United States and Canada and the other Western states do in education. So I'm sorry that Mr. Seps or whoever can't see how that connection works, but it works reliably. It works over and over and over again. And maybe they're right. Maybe like the laws of physics, we're going to wake up tomorrow and that laws not, the, the laws just aren't going to hold. Maybe we'll wake up tomorrow and we'll throw a baseball and it'll just keep going up and up and up and up and up because gravity will just turn off. We don't know that it won't for sure. We can't know for sure. So maybe when UNESCO puts out another fucking document, maybe it won't make it in the schools this time. Maybe, maybe, but in my experience, every time the sun goes down, it comes up the next morning, and that's where we're at. And as a matter of fact, what this I Told You So episode is about is in about a document that I stumbled upon recently. Um, sadly, a couple of months ago, I have so many documents I get sent to me that I can't keep up with them or get them out. And I also produce too much content. I, I've noticed that um, people are complaining again. You put out too many podcasts. Do we have to have another podcast about social emotional learning? Well, let's see. There are three enemies in the world right now if you want to defeat the big bad guy, and they are sustainable development goals, 
ESG, which is environmental, social, and governance metrics for finance and uh, institutional, uh, I don't know, institutional behavior and social emotional learning. So yeah, we got to keep talking about social emotional learning. You don't understand it yet. You don't get it. We have to keep talking about it. But this document is from the NEA Foundation, the National Education Association Foundation. And it's called Creative Lessons to Open Classrooms and Minds to the World. And what is this document? This is a document that was put together by a fellow, um, by a number of, of fellows, but it's it's attributed to, to Fernando M. Reimers. I assume that's how you pronounce the name. Robert Adams Jr., Megan Burka, with the NEA Foundation Global Learning Fellows. And it was edited by Michelle McKenzie with graphic design, which is slick, by Miranda Gallas. They always have good graphic design, these people. Okay. So it starts off with a, a forward or an introductory letter, a greeting letter from Robert Adams Jr., PhD, former senior vice president of programs of the NEA Foundation. Let me just give you a spoiler before I start reading through. I'm not going to read all of this. I pull out some selections. Um, it's a 136 page document. What is this document before we go into it? So it's really simple. The document is lesson plans literally for each grade K through 12 to get children in line with the sustainable development goals of the United Nations agenda 2030. Now this isn't UNESCO putting this out. In this case, this is the NEAF. This is the National Education Association Foundation in conjunction with Education First Educational Tours. This is the NEA. So the NEA is picking up the UNESCO idea and the United Nations program and bringing it into schools. Night fall or day follows night and night follows day. What a freaking amazing thing. And so here we have Robert Adams, PhD, Senior Vice President of Programs for the NEA Foundation. And he starts off by saying, in 1969, the National Education Association, the NEA, spun off its charitable giving activities into the NEA Foundation for the improvement of education. That's the NEAF. It is an independent charity. Prior to the foundation's creation... The NEA earmarked a portion of its members' annual dues to support educational experimentation. The NEAF was charged with investing these annual funds into strategic grant-making geared toward improving American education. The National Education Association Foundation operates like other philanthropic foundations with one significant difference. U.S. educators provide a majority of the NEAF's resources. Okay. So let's be real clear politically about what's happening here. The National Education Association, which is the largest teachers union in North America, or in the United States at least, um, competes with the American Teachers Federation or whatever, or whatever, AFT or ATF or whatever the hell it is. AFT, I think. Um, American Foundation of Teachers or something. Federation of Teachers or something. These are the two biggest teachers unions. NEA is usually the one that everybody's got their eyeballs stuck on. This is this is where what happens in education from the union perspective is really decided. So they create this charitable organization. That's a political organization. They try to create a charitable organization that can do different things and is actually restricted in what it can do so it can receive charitable giving, and that's called the NEAF. This is a very standard practice. I've even thought about creating a New Discourses Foundation that's separate from New Discourses, legally speaking, 
that allows me or would allow me to accept charitable giving, but it has to do different things. It has to meet differently. It would be organized as a 501c3 or 4 or something like this under different. So this is something people do. And what it says is we're earmarking a portion of the members of the NEA's annual dues to support educational experimentation. That's what the NEAF is for. It gives grant making. So this is what you have to do with these things. It takes in all this money, some of it being the dues from the National Education Association members. It takes in this money and it gives grants to people who want to do experimental stuff in education. Okay. So um, Mr. Adams continues. He says, as the NEA Foundation celebrates its 50th anniversary, the mission, strongly rooted in the generation, uh, generosity of America's educators, remains the same. The NEA Foundation, through uh, the unique strength of its partnership with educators, advances student achievement by investing in public education that will prepare each of America's children to learn and thrive in a rapidly changing world. And so up to this point, you're like, okay, this is standard institutional gobbledygook, whatever. But then we get to this thing here at the end, to learn and thrive in a rapidly changing world. And if you are kind of up on what's going on, you say, well, that sounds a little WEFE. That sounds like the World Economic Forum. They're always talking about the rapid changes in the world require global cooperation. And so the, their solution, I mean, this is one of the things, one of the things Klaus Schwab talks about all the time is velocity, the velocity of change, the velocity of the world today. It's so high that we need global co- cooperation and collaboration that will just so happen to be facilitated through him and his little cabal of stakeholders. So it sounds a little WEF flavored, but where, where does where does Mr. Adams go with this? He says, the NEF's, no, sorry, NEAF's Global Learning Fellowship, so this is a program that they have with the grant giving, responds to the current inequitable, uh-oh, <laughs> responds to the current inequitable concentration of global education in wealthier school districts. The program gathers a national cadre of globally oriented educators, uh-oh, of globally oriented education leaders who are capable of advocating for equitable access to global education in their schools, districts, and states. Now, this is very WEFE at this point. This is very world, this is WEF. This is World Economic Forum talk, right? What does it say? We have a current inequitable concentration of global education in wealthier school districts. So let me just make it real clear. If your kids go to a wealthier school district, which you usually would think is a better school, it has a higher concentration of global education. What the hell is global education? I've been trying to expose that on Twitter for a little while. We're going to have to figure out how to put together a podcast for that. That's the global citizenship education push. We all know now, if we look at my, say, my Twitter, which some of you do, um, we or the documents that I, I've put out there, we know that that's rooted explicitly in Paulo Ferreri. We now understand why I wrote The Marxification of Education. It's explicit that the critical consciousness that Paulo Ferreri's method orients education toward uh, achieving is the foundation of a global education. So this is brainwashing into globalist thinking. That's what global education means. And it's, there's an inequitable, it's not good, he's saying, because there's an inequitable concentration of that in wealthier school districts. So if your kids go to a wealthier school district, it's probably more woke. You want to go to a better school? It's probably more woke. And then it goes on. It says this program, their global learning fellowship, gathers a national cadre of globally oriented education leaders. 
globally oriented. So they're handpicking. So this thing, the National Education Association, it's a teachers union, splits off a foundation that can do charitable grant making, charitable rece- receiving, and then grant making. And it gives a grant to a thing called a Global Learning Fellowship, and that money is being selectively handed out to a, quote, national cadre of globally oriented education leaders. And what do these globally oriented education leaders who are a cadre that are being hand-selected by this group of teachers union um, agents do? They are capable of advocating for equitable access to global education. In other words, we're going to make sure that all the schools, all the school districts, we're going to redistribute resources from wealthier school districts to poorer school districts for the purpose of bringing global education initiatives in to all the school districts. So we're going to have equitable um, equitable access and distribution of brainwashing, and that's going to be by extracting resources from wealthier school districts and redirecting them to poorer school districts specifically so that global education initiatives can be brought in. This is the same kind of trick you see again and again. What do they do? They say, well, there's lots of at-risk students. There's lots of youth mental health problems. We need more resiliency. They say all of these things. They have these problems with the kids. And then what they do is they they get it under whether it's Title I, which is disability stuff, whether it's um, CARES Act or whether it's ESSER funding. What they do is they end up earmarking money so that it goes to schools to complete particular leftist projects. If you can identify more kids as at risk by redefining at risk to mean not socially and emotionally learning compliant or competent upon graduation by saying that that's a a risk for their future employability or college or career readiness or the technical terms, which over 40 states have redefined college and career ready and at risk to include that. If you do that, then you can redirect money that should go to actually at risk kids federal education dollars that are meant to go, when you think of that as a normal person, you're like, oh, well, these are kids in bad situations that we want to help. No, no, no. It's every kid now. And it gets redirected. And the thing they're at risk of is graduating without being fully social and emotional learning competent, which means it has to be directed into funding social and emotional learning programs. And so they are literally milking the system. And this is happening here again. They're going to redirect funding from wealthier schools to less wealthy schools on the earmark of creating global education. Global education. That's going to be UNESCO-type programs. That's going to be global citizenship. That's going to be sustainable development goals. Um, Mr. Adams goes on. He says the GLF, remember that is the Global Learning Fellowship, The GLF represents a significant investment by the foundation to facilitate leadership in global education. Therefore, the NEAF is always looking for ways to scale its efforts beyond the 40 to 50 fellows the foundation directly hosts each year. So this organization is hosting 40 to 50 fellows. I'm sure these are people that are fairly well paid for this position through this money that's coming mostly from educators and from Uh, NEA dues. This is going to them to do global education, and they're trying to scale its efforts. This lesson plan, they say, this lesson plan book in particular shares the wisdom of the GLF educators to a larger audience. So now the idea is to scale this by creating a curriculum guide K through 12 to advance global uh, global global learning fellowship goals in 
everybody else. So you have your 40 to 50 activists that they can fund that produce all the materials that drive this stuff in. Then they produce workbooks, they produce curriculum guides, and they disseminate this with slick graphic design and everything else. They disseminate this to teachers and say, this is a great model curriculum to get you on board with the Global Learning Fellowship Program that's going to take us toward global education and going to teach the kids 21st century skills. And by the way, they're probably going to package it up and say, here are all these government tech, uh, check boxes that it's going to tick off so that you can get your federal money. He goes on, Dr. Fernando Ramirez, Rymers, R-E-I-M-E-R-S, Rymers. I'm going to say Rymers. Dr. Fernando Rymers, Ford Foundation Professor of Practice in International Education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Isn't that a fun title right there? Okay, so he's at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, so we already know that's not a good sign. Um, he's a professor of practice in international education. Professor of practice. We always keep hearing that word practice, but anyway. But he's the Ford Foundation He's, he's, he's got an endowed chair by the Ford Foundation at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. So Dr. Fernando Reimers, Ford Foundation Professor of Practice in International Education at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, generously allowed our fellows to borrow the global education lesson plan template he developed with his Harvard graduate students as a foundation for this book. The GLF represents a significant investment by the foundation to facilitate leadership in global education. So we have the NEAF unambiguously telling us that the direction that the NEA, that the schools is going to take, is going to be into global education, that there's a significant investment here, that they've written a book to scale their efforts beyond their fellows, and what it contains, based on this work of Fernando Reimers and his Harvard graduate students, is a year-by-year -year lesson plan for global education, which just so happens, as we're going to discover, to be geared in teaching the sustainable development goals of United Nations Agenda 2030 in K-12, starting in kindergarten. By the way, the first lessons in kindergarten are about hunger, about what it means to be hungry. Well, that just lines up with some of the first goals, eradicate hunger in all of its forms in the SDGs. So we're going to start in kindergarten teaching children about starvation and hunger. And you'll see how emotionally driven it is when we get to that. So uh, did I put this twice? Um, sorry. It says, uh, the lesson plan book in particular shares the wisdom of the GLF educators to a larger audience. Again, because they're trying to scale beyond their... Um, trying to scale beyond their 40 to 50 fellows that they pay. So GLF fellows gathered in Washington, D.C. for a three-day in-person workshop where Dr. Reimers introduced the model and walked the fellows through the steps required to produce the lesson plan book. The extensive collaboration yielded a draft lesson plan for each grade level. So that's what this book is. It's a draft lesson plan in sustainable development goal, global citizen education for K-12. through it's already at the level of the National Education Association Foundation. It will not take this long. I'm telling you, by the end of 2023, SDGs in education is going to be one of the biggest topics. Global citizenship and education is going to be one of the biggest topics everybody's talking about. DEI isn't going to go away. It's still tucked in there. 
environmentalism isn't going to go away. It's still tucked in there, but that's what we're all going to be talking about because that's the direction they're going to bend education as hard as they can. Remember, it's Agenda 2030. They've only got seven years left. They have to remake education now. They have to have seven years worth of students if they get their way by 2030. They have to get this in fast. The extensive collaboration, like I said, yielded a draft lesson plan for each grade level. That's what Dr. Adams tells us. Um, external global, uh, maybe it's Mr. I don't know. External global curriculum experts reviewed each draft lesson plan and offered constructive criticism to the groups. The teams then revised their lesson plans based on the feedback. Finally, the National Education Association Foundation staff and external editorial consultants prepare the book for publication. So the book gives you grade by grade lesson plans for teaching the sustainable development goals in K through 12. This is that I told you so moment. But who is this Dr. Fernando Reimer, EDD? He is a doctor. Uh, sorry, I was thinking of Mr. Adams. I don't know if Mr. Adams is a doctor. Who is Dr. Fernando Reimer, EDD? Who is he? Well, um, he writes this introduction, but he's got a lot of stuff about him. Okay. And I'll, I'll tell you about the introduction in just a second. He is a Ford Foundation, like I said, fellow. He's got a Harvard Graduate School of Education appointment that's an endowed chair through the Ford Foundation. He has a profile on the WEF website, of course. He is a WEF person. He's also recognized as a person of significance for USAID and the World Bank. And like I said, he works at Harvard. Uh, his Wikipedia entry starts this way, just to be kind of really clear um, Fernando Reimers, Fernando M. Reimers is the Ford Foundation professor in, uh, of the practice, or sorry, well, it says that, of the practice in international education and director of the Global Education Innovation Initiative at the Harvard Graduate School of Education. Harvard's innovative graduate school program is pushing this direction, in other words. He is interested in advancing understanding of the ways schools can empower students to participate civically and economically and to help achieve the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. He served on UNESCO's Commission on the Futures of Education that authored the report, Reimagining Our Futures Together, a New Social Contract for Education. So we're going to have to reimagine our futures together. Kamala Harris's favorite word. She might be as dumb as she looks and sounds, but she says that word together over and over again because it's scripted for her because she knows what it means. Reimagining our futures together. It means collectivism. A new social contract. Did you sign up for a new social contract? No, of course you didn't. The stakeholders decided we're going to have a whole new social program. Of course, social contract theory is Rousseau. That's all in the same leftist bent. So they're going to give us a new social contract for education that's going to require us to reimagine our futures together because he works for UNESCO and is probably a communist. He contributed to a self-published book. He actually has a bunch of books. A self-published book in 2016 titled Empowering Global Citizens. He has lots of other books about similar topics. They're almost all about remaking education in service of United Nations Agenda 2030 and the sustainable development goals that serve that agenda. Most of his books, actually, if you go look at them, you can go just type in his name, Fernando Reimers. You can go type it in, type in his books, go look at the covers. Many of his books feature that weird little circle with the 17 Sustainable Development Goal symbols. You know that wheel of doom that I keep calling the Eye of Sauron? 
the sustainable development goal wheel. If you don't know what that is, go type it in and go look at it. You need to see it. You need to understand that that symbol, which is on a lot of lapel pins of a lot of important people, is the symbol of being compliant to Agenda 2030 with the United Nations. Most of Fernando Reimer's books are about global citizenship and education, and they feature the SDG wheel on the cover. For example, um, one of his books from 2017, which is titled One Student at a Time, Leading the Global Education Movement, features that wheel as the iris of an eye. Like it's a zoomed-in picture of an eyeball of a human eye, but the iris, instead of being blue or being brown or being a little green or hazel, the colored part of your eye if you're not keeping up, the iris is the SDG wheel. It is the 17 Sustainable Development Goals put into the little circle. See, each one of the little 17 goals has a, has a little, it's on a little card, a little rectangle, and it's a different color. And so they put them in a wheel in a circle, around, around in a circle. And on the, so it's this like kind of weird rainbow colored little Thing. It looks kind of like Trivial Pursuit pieces going around with a hollow center. So his 2017 book, One Student at a Time, Leading the Global Education Movement, that's the book. The cover is a human eye, like, you know, with eyelashes. It's not like an eyeball, like, floating in space. It's a picture of a human eye with the Sustainable Development Goal wheel as the iris of the eye. And so... His introduction to this document is titled Developing Teacher Professional Capacity to Educate Global Citizens Through Collaborative Curriculum Design. So you see global citizens, you see collaborative, and everything kind of goes together. Um, the first section is called The Urgency of Global Education. Remember like a year ago when we were all having to learn that ur sense of urgency is a uh, like a, a property of white supremacy? You know why they did that in CRT? Do you know why they said a sense of urgency is a is an aspect of white supremacy culture? So that you wouldn't pay attention to the fact that everything they do comes with a sense of urgency. They, they were they were it's iron law of woke projection. It's accuse your enemies of that which you're about to do. So they're saying you guys have a sense of urgency. That's bad. You can't be urgent and resisting us. That's white supremacy culture. But they have a sense of urgency in moving their thing, and they tell you so over and over again. It doesn't count for them. They're Gnostics. When they do it, it's for good reasons. When you do it, because you're not a Gnostic, it's for bad reasons. So they're allowed to. In fact, they're better than you, so they must. And you're too stupid to know it, so you can't. The urgency of global education. Urgency of global education, he tells us. So I'm telling you, we don't have many years left to 2030 urgency. They have to get this crap into the schools and they have to do it fast. We should fight this tooth and nail this year. We should blow it up before it becomes the mainstream topic if we can. But what does he do? I said this document was sounding a little WEF based, right? Little World Economic Forum flavor, right? Well, let's not uh, miss anything. Mr. F or doctor, I should say, Dr. 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 Joe Biden, Dr. Fernando Reimers doesn't just mention the World Economic Forum. He starts his foreword to this document by rooting the entire thing in the World Economic Forum. It begins under the heading, The Urgency of Global Education. Since 2006, the World Economic Forum produces each year a report on the major global risks facing humanity. That's his, that's his opener. The guy who created the curriculum guide for the sustainable development goals starts with an opener saying that the World Economic Forum tells us how bad the world is and how we can fix it. He goes on and says, 
drawing on the insight of a panel of experts. There's your Soviet of stakeholders. Drawing on the insight of a panel of experts and on survey to... Uh, it's what it says. And on survey to a group of well-informed global leaders, your stakeholders, the Soviet, the, the Council of Stakeholders, drawing on the insight of a panel of experts and then a survey to a group of well-informed global leaders. Not you. Not you. You were never asked. New social contract based on the World Economic Forum, based on a panel of experts and a group of well-informed global leaders. Technocrats all. This is technocracy being put down on you and onto your kids. So what did it, well, drawing on the insights of this report identifies those risks in terms of their likelihood and impact. The risks identified are economic, environmental, geopolitical, societal, and technological. Economic risks include asset bubbles, deflation. So hold on. Asset bubbles. If you don't know what the World Economic Forum and all this ESG and all this like economic control crap and central make digital curve. If you don't understand what they're doing, why they want to gather all this data off of your kids through SEL, it's to make perfectly predictable and moldable economic consumers, just like Ben Williamson told us. I did a podcast on that too. Then there will be no asset bubbles. If the bubble's growing too fast, you can just calm it down by nudging people's behavior. If the asset is, if the if the bubbles aren't growing fast enough, you can nudge behavior and get perfectly moldable economic units. Those are your kids and you, by the way, to go stimulate the economy. So you no longer have a volatile economy or a volatile market. You have a nice, smooth increase of economic growth that happens to pour almost entirely into the pockets of the technocrats setting it up. So economic risks include asset bubbles, deflation, failure of financial institutions. You mean by like setting up a bunch of fraud like this, robbing 99.9% .9 of the world and then pretending that it was their fault? Yes, of course. Failure of critical infrastructure, financial crises, high structural unemployment or underemployment, illicit trade, severe energy price shock. Well, you know, energy abundance policies rather than this green energy shit would probably stop that but severe energy, price shock, and unmanageable inflation, which they seem to be constructing. They don't have to keep printing and spending money. It's just that they've painted themselves into an economic corner and can't do anything else. Environmental risks include extreme weather, failure of climate change mitigation and adaptation, major biodiversity loss and ecosystem collapse, major natural disasters and man-made environmental disasters, blah, blah, blah. Geopolitical risks include failure of national governance, which they seem to want. Failure of regional or global governance. Wait a minute. Interstate conflict, large-scale terrorist attacks, state collapse or crisis, weapons of mass destruction. Societal risks include failure of urban planning, food crises, large-scale involuntary migration, which they're encouraging, profound social instability, which they're rapidly encouraging. That's what woke is for. Rapid spread of infectious diseases and water crises. Technological risks include adverse consequences of technological advances, critical information infrastructure breakdown, large-scale cyber attacks, and massive data fraud and theft, according to a report in the World Economic Forum 2019. 
And it goes on like this for a couple of pages where he's talking about how the World Economic Forum is the entity in which his ideas about remaking education to be global education, to be globalist education, to be global citizenship education, to be in alignment with the United Nations Agenda 2030 Sustainable Development Goals explicitly is all based off of the World Economic Forum. The World Economic Forum is the foundation of his program. So it's the usual pablum corporate nonsense. I'm not going to waste our time reading through all of it. But the point that he's making throughout, after basing everything in the World Economic Forum, saying that the United Nations Agenda 2030 provides uh, sustainable development goals, provides a solution, we will get to that, is the necessity of education to turn to global education, specifically to get the kids to grow up believing that they need to tackle those major problems. And when if they're stressed, use social emotional learning to calm them down, make sure they stay resilient right? So how is this supposed to happen? He says, this is still Fernando Reimers, in contrast to these pressing risks and challenges, a more hopeful vision for the future of the world is expressed in a compact of 17 goals adopted at the United Nations General Assembly in September of 2015. They articulate the conditions for a world which is inclusive and sustainable. And then you have a picture of all 17 uh, sustainable development goals right there on the page. What's the problem? Well, the problem is all these issues um, that the World Economic Forum laid out. What's the solution? Well, we're going to teach the kids to meet the 17 sustainable development goals of the United Nations Agenda 2030. Quote, 17 goals to transform our world. What are they? One, no poverty. Two, zero hunger. There's your kindergarten lessons. Three, Good health and well-being. Four, quality education. Five, gender equality. Six, clean water and sanitation. Seven, affordable and clean energy. Well, there we have a problem. Uh, eight, decent work and economic growth. That's what I was just talking about before. Nine, can I read that? Uh, it's so small. Let me blow this up, actually. I'm sorry. Terrible. Can't read it. Nine, industry, innovation, and infrastructure. Ten, reduced inequalities. Eleven, sustainable cities and communities. Twelve, with a picture of an infinity sign with an arrow, like a snake eating its own tail. Responsible consumption and production. Thirteen, climate action with an eye as the icon. The image is an eye, but the globe is centered, the globe centered on, it looks like basically the Middle East, um, happens to be the, 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 the iris and pupil together, the colored part of the eye. 14, life below water. 15, life on land. 16, peace, justice, and strong institutions. 17, a bunch of interlocking circles. Partnership, uh, sorry, partnerships for the goals. It's like a circle of circles, which was what um, Hegel called this crap. Uh, the, his model is a circle of circles, and that's number 17. So there we are. That's the 17 sustainable development goals. If you've never heard them all, that's what Dr. Reimers says is the solution to the problem that the World Economic Forum lays out as the major problems in the world. So this is what we have to do in education, and that's the point of his program to make education for SDGs for K-12 through with 
elaborate lesson plans that has been turned into a book by the National Education Association Foundation to be disseminated through the National Education Association to the school so that they can go broader than their 40 to 50 fellows. Are you following along? Reimer says each of these goals and uh, has in turn a number of specific targets. That's right. There's 169 of them. I don't know what the numerology is. I know that 17 is a magic number and a lot of things represents a lot of crap. The completion of nature, the second level, the higher level of the number eight, which is magically special because one plus seven is eight and all this nonsense. It's also eight plus nine, which is supposed to be numerologically special. This is supposed to be a very important number in, in hermetic magic. It comes up a lot in kind of weird ways. There are 17 sustainable development goals or 17 contradictions of capitalism identified in Marx's works. 17 um, is the number that Paulo Ferreri gives as the correct number of generative themes necessary to conscientize somebody. It comes up kind of a lot. It's a little weird, secondary weird. There are a number of targets. So you think maybe there's like on average 10 per, right? So it's 170. No, they're 169, which turn out to be 13 squared, and 13 is magic in their numerology too. Does that matter? I don't know. I have no idea. I know that some people think in symbols. I don't think in numerology, so I don't know why, but 13 is also an important number, and 13 squared is 169, and they have 169 targets, and they didn't come up with one more target to get to 170 when they have 17, which would have been kind of like nice. Seems a little sus. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's coincidence. I'm just pointing stuff out. Um, I have no conclusion to draw about that, but these are the numbers. So each of these goals has in turn a number of specific targets which operationalize the goals. Goal number four, for example, focused on quality education for all. Um, education for all, by the way, is a, uni a United Nations, is the, this isn't capitalized here, but if capitalized, Education for All is the name of a United Nations program that inspired what was called the World Core Curriculum, which got adopted in the United States as Common Core. And for threads back to WTFSSEL, which I mentioned in that podcast, World Core Curriculum was developed by a United Nations professional, by the name career professional by the name of Robert Mueller, who is not the special counsel guy. They're not related. It's not even spelled the same. Robert Mueller. And Robert Mueller created that. And it was a big fan also of Alice Bailey. And that's its own side thing I'm not going to get into right now. Anyway, goal number four, for example, back to Dr. Reimer's focused on quality education for all, includes a target which focuses on global citizenship education. So one of their explicit targets in the SDGs is global citizenship education. I'm telling you, if you haven't picked up on how often your educators in, in the spaces around your children are using the phrase global citizen, we're going to raise global citizens, we're going to teach global citizens, you need to pay attention. There's no such thing as a global citizen. Citizenship is a relationship between a subject and a sovereign. There is no global sovereign. We don't want a global sovereign. We do not want a global government that makes good on the rights and privileges and duties of a global citizen. But if you already think of yourself as a global citizen, it becomes very easy to convince people we should make good on that on the other side of this coin by creating a global sovereign. Stop thinking of yourself. Do not think of your children as global citizens. There's no such thing as a global citizen. You are a citizen of the country you live in. You are a citizen of the city you live in, the state you live in, wherever it happens to be. You are not a citizen of the globe or of a global governance, actually. You are of a global... Pro you are a person who lives in the world. You could say you're a person of the world. You could be a cosmopolitan person of the world. You are not a global citizen. This is completely different. But goal number four 
which is focused on quality education for all, includes a target which focuses on global citizenship education. In other words, they want to brainwash your kids into believing that they're global citizens so that they can actualize a global government. And he says, in ways reminiscent of the language of the right to education in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. What is the Universal Declaration of Human Rights? That was something put out by the United Nations, of course. It's very famous. And it is, in fact, if you understand it, it is a direct shot at the Bill of Rights in the United States and the Magna Carta upon which it's based. They're going to transform those things into something completely different. Go read them side by side. See what, see what you see. What does it say? He said, quoting, target 4.7 by 2030, ensure all learners acquire knowledge and skills. So you need 100% compliance. Ensure all learners acquire knowledge and skills needed to promote sustainable development, including among other, that's the global citizenship target, target number 4.7. By 2030, seven years, ensure all learners acquire knowledge and skills needed to promote sustainable development, including among others through education for sustainable development and sustainable lifestyles, human rights, gender equality, promotion of a culture of peace and nonviolence, global citizenship, and appreciation of cultural diversity and of culture's contribution to sustainable development. Citation UNESCO 2019. There's your target 4.7, that's global education, global citizenship education, and you hear what it's for. Every learner, that's Freire, that's a Frarian reframing of student. They're learners now. Every student acquires knowledge and skills needed to promote sustainable development, including, among others, through education for sustainable development and sustainable lifestyle. So they're going to teach the SDGs. Human rights, so they're going to teach the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Gender equality, that's target number five, or whatever, uh, goal number five. But it's also, we know that that's where we're going to get what we call gender ideology, but we mean queer theory being brought in, and gender critical, uh, social constructed. Gender ideology means believing in the social constructed nature of gender, uh, which is horseshit. Um, promotion of a culture of peace and nonviolence. That sounds really good, but it basically means that they are going to be in complete control. Uh, global citizenship, which we already have debunked for them, and appreciation of cultural diversity, oh, that D word there, and of culture's contribution to sustainable development. So somehow cultural diversity is contributing to sustainable development through wizardry or magic or something. Uh, Dr. Reimers comments on this by saying an intentional global education which responds to these cultural imperatives would create opportunities for students to learn about and develop the skills to address the kinds of risks identified by the World Economic Forum and to contribute to achieve the United Nations development goals. Could that be more explicit in terms of what they're doing? And this is the National Education Association Foundation. Yet again, let me point that out. This is a foundation connected to the teachers' union and what it's saying is that the whole point of teaching kids about the SDGs is to develop the skills to address the kind of risks identified by the World Economic Forum and to contribute to achieve the United Nations development goals. That's the sustainable development goals, to transform our world. That is what they want the point of education to be. Now, we're not talking about UNESCO out there in the, in the wilderness. We're talking about a guy that's at Harvard's Graduate School of Education on a Ford Foundation endowed chair. That's a lot of money, but it's a lot of money, a lot of power. And 
what's he what's he he's writing for? He's writing for the National Education Association Foundation. The connections happening. This is going into the schools. The goal is going to be over the next year to two years to remake pre-K through PhD every school, including K through twelve, SDG education, sustainable development goal education. And here we have it. I told you so. I told you so. Okay, sorry. In 2009 to 2010, with a group of colleagues, I developed a comprehensive curriculum spanning from kindergarten to high school aligned with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Now, hang on a second. In 2009 to 2010, he created a curriculum that was aligned with their program that they invented in September of 2015. Pretty neat how that happened. It turns out the Sustainable Development Goals were adapted from something called the Millennial Goals or Millennium Goals that came out before that. There were eight of them rather than 17. Uh, but anyway, he says we, and he tells you this, he says, we initially worked with the millennium development goals and later on substituted them with the sustainable development goals as they were adopted at the UN general assembly in 2015. So that's a big parentheses. Let me back up so we can do the actual sentence. I developed a comprehensive curriculum spanning from kindergarten to high school aligned with the UN SDGs, with the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and with the World Economic Forum Risk Assessment Framework. That's what this is coming from. That's what's happening at the top of the, or not necessarily at the top, sorry. That's what's happening in the Harvard Graduate School of Education. That's what's happening at the National Education Association Foundation. Where do you think it, this is all coming from UNESCO, from the United Nations, from the SDGs, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, and the World Economic Forum Risk Assessment Framework? He says, from the study of those goals, we developed a framework of competencies. There's your other magic buzzword. Pay attention. Who's ever talked about education that way? We talked about mastery. We talked about subject matters. We Competencies. It's good enough to be competent. Competencies which a high school graduate should have in order to contribute to achieve such goals and then use such framework to guide the development of 350 units to be taught in a special course that would provide students explicit opportunities to integrate knowledge gained in various disciplines as they worked on projects aligned with those competencies. They have developed this 13 or 14 years ago, been developing it, been harnessing it. And then in 2022, when this document was published, the NEA Foundation is putting this out saying, this is the direction we're taking education, PS Teachers Union. And here is a well-developed, well-oiled curriculum guide, 350 units spanning K through 12, kindergarten through the end of high school, to bring kids into knowledge of the Sustainable Development Goals, Global Citizenship, World Economic Forum Risk Assessment, and use social-emotional learning to assuage their fears, to assuage their terror, their existential terror that's being induced by this, and to radicalize them through Freirean means into becoming activists for the project. How are they justifying it in implementation? Well, Dr. Reimers tells us, one of the pedagogical principles on which this design was grounded was to rely extensively on project-based learning and on active learning methodologies, which in part have derived, but not totally, have derived from the ideas of Ferrari. Again, those come up. He says, such as design thinking, that place students at the center of their learning. That's Ferrari. We also sought to give students abundant opportunities to demonstrate understanding in the form of products that could be shared with peers, teachers, and other audiences, including students in other grades in the school and parents. Then he goes on through a 
lot of various competencies, which are very telling, honestly, but they're also very tedious to go through. If I can um, take a quick look, I did not actually include them uh, in the my notes. Intellectual, or sorry, intercultural competencies, I'm just going to skim. I'm not even going to get into it. But they have like four and five points under each one. Interpersonal skills, intrapersonal skills, SEL is going to latch right onto that, right? That's your self-awareness and social awareness goals. Uh, Understanding of how one's identity, of others' identity, and how other cultures shape uh, their own and other identities and where one is in space and time. Like, come on. Two, ethical orientation. A, appreciation of ethical frameworks in diverse religious systems. B, commitment to basic equality of all people. C, recognition of common values and common humanity across civilizational streams. D, again, these have subpoints. Appreciation of the potential of every person regardless of socioeconomic circumstances or cultural origin. Actually, these ones in particular don't have subpoints. The other ones do. E, Appreciation of the role of global compacts, such as the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and guiding global governance. F. Commitment to supporting universal human rights, to reducing global poverty, to promoting peace, and to promoting sustainable forms of human environmental interaction. Remember that this is these are your competencies for kids that are supposed to go through this program to graduate in high school by the time they graduate high school. Uh, G. Ability to interact with people from diverse cultural backgrounds while demonstrating humility, respect, reciprocity, and integrity. H. An understanding of the role of trust in sustaining human interaction as well. Yeah, trust us. Just freaking trust us. Trust, Trust the World Economic Forum, the United Nations. Trust in sustaining human interaction as well as global institutions and recognizing uh, recognition of forms of breakdowns in trust and institutional corruption and its causes. Three, knowledge and skills. A, culture, religion, and history and geography. Eight, nine, let's see. Yeah, nine subpoints in that one. B, politics and government. Six subpoints in this one. Um, C, economics, business, and entrepreneurship. Six subpoints: D, science, technology, innovation, and globalization; E, public health, population, and demography. All of these things. I mean, this is, and then of course, they're all SDG compliant. Stuff like you know the consequences of global poverty and the agency of the poor. Um, these are the kinds of things uh, that they want people to understand. Contemporary global challenges and human environmental interaction. Blah, blah, blah. Four, work and mind habits. A, demonstrate innovation and creativity in contributing to formulating solutions to global challenges and seizing global opportunities. Seek and identify the best global practices and transfer them across geographic, disciplinary, and professional contexts. B, identify different cultural perspectives through which to think about problems, other ways of knowing anybody. C, understand the process of cultural change and that there is individual variation within cultural groups. In other words, cultural Marxism. D, carry out research projects independently. Okay, whatever. E, present results of independent research in writing, orally, and using media. These are, that's, I mean, I didn't go into all the subpoints. I don't know how many there are. A bunch. Like, whatever. We could count them. These are the things that they're actually giving you, but uh, he goes on through a lot of these competencies in detail. Um, it's tedious. The next section is titled Helping Teachers Gain Knowledge and Skills in Global Education. That's the point of this document. And here's a taste of what it says. We're not going to do a lot of this. Because curriculum is not self-executing, a quality program of global education will require teachers with the expertise to teach that curriculum. So we're going to have to train teachers to be SDG facilitators in the Ferrarian sense. 
studies on deeper learning. Deeper learning is the fusion of Dewey's method with Ferrari's method, by the way. So this is a socialist John Dewey's educational method combined with the critical pedagogy of Paulo Ferrari. I just read a paper about that specifically that's connected and funded by the Department of Education today uh, by some weird coincidence. Deeper learning refers to the fusion of the Dewey method and the Ferrari method. So studies on deeper learning and 21st century skills, that's World Economic Forum bullshit. They're building out the economy that the kids are going to work in. So they're going to lay out what skills that they want the kids to have and not have so that they'll be useful cogs in their machine. So those are what they call 21st century skills because they're going to define the 21st century. And so they're going to define which skills matter in the 21st century. And that's what your kids are going to have to develop. And they're going to get plugged into the thing accordingly. Okay, so studies on deeper learning and 21st century skills emphasize the significant challenge and priority which building teacher capacity to translate 21st century curriculum into effective instruction represents. A recent National Research Council report calls for significant changes in teacher preparation. Of course it does. Quote, current systems of teacher preparation and professional development will require major changes if they are to support teaching that encourages deeper learning so if we're going to have communist education and critical pedagogy, we're going to have to train teachers into that, is what they're saying there, and the development of transferable competencies. It's all these competencies. Don't trust that word. Changes will need to be made not only in conceptions of what constitutes effective professional practice, but also in the purposes, structure, and organization of pre-service and professional learning opportunities. See, purposes. It's not just going to be about how we can teach better, what are better professional practices, best practices, etc. It's not just about organization. It's about redefining the purposes of education and educating teachers through continuing education. And the purposes are clear. Sustainable development goals. Global citizenship. Similarly, the U.S. National Commission on Social, Emotional, and Academic Development Huh, there's social-emotional learning hiding in plain sight, underscores the urgency of the professional development challenge. That's who they actually asked. The U.S. National Commission on SEL underscores the urgency of the professional development challenge, calling to redesign educator preparation programs, create collaborative decision-making in schools and districts, prioritize social-emotional, uh-huh, there it is again, and cognitive skills and competencies in recruitment, hiring, orientation, and professional learning. So what does that mean? Pause before we go back to the rest of the list. What does that mean? What that means is we're only going to hire teachers who are SEL compliant. So you have the Soviet doctrine. We have it now is going to be geared with SEL. And the only teachers who can be teachers are going to be people who are SEL competent. Do you see how it works? So they're going to have to push out all the teachers who aren't SEL brainwashers and bring in brainwashers. That's what that is. That's exactly what that is. Um, where were we? Uh, I got lost. Sorry. Um Okay, so underscores the urgency of professional development challenge. Wait, we already did that. Calling to redesign educational preparation programs, so new trainings, creating uh, collaborative decision-making in schools and districts, collaborative, 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 with who? With the World Economic Forum and the United Nations, probably. Prioritize social, emotional, and cognitive skills and competencies in recruitment, hiring, orientation, and professional learning. So that's make sure you only have brainwashing teachers. Incentivize innovation and teacher preparation programs. In other words, give them money to transform the programs into the brainwashing stuff. Redesign licensure and accreditation. As if licensure and accreditation isn't captured enough, they're going to capture it more. 
Are you paying attention? Ensure that induction programs for new teachers support these domains and restructure adult workforce systems. This citing the Aspen Institute from 2019, which is something you probably haven't paid attention to yet, but it's almost as bad as the World Economic Forum. It's right up there in the globalist problem, the Aspen Institute. Goes on and says, teachers need to develop knowledge and skills in global education. They're not being, they're not beating around the bush in terms of what they want. We're going to redesign teacher accreditation, teacher licensure, teacher training around knowledge and skills in global education, which means the sustainable development goals and need to develop shared understandings with colleagues. In other words, if you don't agree, you're a problem within their schools in order to be able to collaborate in the design and implementation of a coherent and rigorous curriculum which extends across grades and subjects beyond a few lessons on global topics here and there. That's global education. And if you don't agree, you're going to be a problem. These various conceptualizations, he says, include an education that is global, including understanding interconnectedness and interdependency, which the wizards understand and you don't, so they're going to have to tell you what the right answers are with that. Oh, it's complicated. It's all interdependent. Everything is interconnected. We have a big model that tells us how it all works. You don't know, so listen to us. The process of globalization, themes like climate change and migration. A second conceptualization included an education to be global. They just said that. Encompassing, understanding, and respecting other cultures and people diversity, equity, and inclusion, and gaining competencies to live in a global world. Those are your SDGs and your DEI. Finally, a third conceptualization included global education as teacher and schoolwork, emphasizing the need for a coordinated approach in sharing resources at the school and at the different, sorry, and the different challenges of integrating global education in various subjects. Integrating global education in various subjects. Integrating global education in various subjects, right? You hear that? Um, let me see if I can find this thing from Education in the New Age. For those of you who didn't listen to like, what is, WTF is uh, SEL. Um, let me actually find this. Uh, science of right. Okay. Um, I think that's where it is. Uh, Alice Bailey, this weird occultist in the 1930s, wrote this book called um, Education in the New Age. And she lays out that the educator in the future is going to have to use psychology more than anything else, blah, blah, blah. And they're going to teach into what's called the science of right human relations. Um, but I'm trying to find where she actually explains that it will be integrated into all of the other subjects, um, which is certainly a part of what she says. And I'm not exactly sure where that is. Um, but if I could find it faster, I would show you. But she definitely says that it's going to have to be woven into the other subjects, all the other subjects. Is this where it is? Um, yeah, yeah. Besides imparting academic knowledge, this is Alice Bailey in the 1930s. He will realize that your educator of the future, who is a psychologist, will realize that his major task is to evoke out of his class of students a real sense of responsibility no matter what he has to teach. History, geography, mathematics, language, science, and his various branches or philosophy, he will relate it all to the science of right human relations and try to give a truer perspective than in the past upon social organization. Okay, so this is her... And this is weird. And this, it's not time to go into how this is so relevant to what we're talking about. But this weirdo 
a, literally a cultist, saying that the point of education is going to be to separate people into workers, into mystics, into occultists based on their talents and skills, and to usher us into a new spiritual age, blah, blah, blah. Fetzer Institute is still doing this, is still deeply invested in it. That's where social-emotional learning was created in Castle, the organization called the Collaborative for Academic Social-Emotional Learning, which we just kind of heard those words, um, is located or was created out of not located it's not located there it came from there in 1994 1995 that's the ideas behind that and here we have this exact same thing different challenges of integrating global education science of right human relations in various subjects same thing same idea same goals same weirdo globalist occultist stuff which is really freaking uncomfortable and strange and he goes on and on like this for several pages he's very detailed and how he does it. So you see how organized they are. They've been spending almost 15 years developing this. He lays out like a 13-step program for redesigning educational priorities and educator commitment. You'll know that all progressives love making, you know, multi-step plans. Hitler was famous for his, I think, 13-step plan to create the Nazi party. Um, they're very detailed. They're very organized. They are very serious about this. The next section, though, we're not going to go through all of that, is called Engaging Teachers as Constructors of Expert Knowledge in Global Education. So hold on. Knowledge construction. We're going to engage teachers as constructors of expert knowledge. Constructors of... No, 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 no. Knowledge is knowing stuff about what's going on in the world. It's not something that we construct. It should be something we're discovering or figuring out or whatever. It is not something we construct. They're firmly in the mental-driven, nominalist, uh, socially constructed worldview here. Teachers become constructors of expert knowledge in global education. And expert knowledge is what we have to treat as though it's true knowledge. It's the scientia. Uh, of the elites, of the philosopher kings. It's the high science that doesn't really matter what the real world says. It's the science of right human relations, maybe. We're seeing teachers being construed through this document and this mentality and this approach. Again, this is the National Education Association Foundation document as constructors of knowledge, not just knowledge, but expert knowledge. We're not talking about knowledge, like actually knowing things. We're talking about believing what experts say. That's expert knowledge. Constructors of expert knowledge. Teachers are constructors of what the experts say in global education. And this is an obviously very Marxist tool then. And we, if we take a first look at what's written in this section, we actually see that this is very much looking Marxist because it adopts a so-called epistemological stance of this type. He says, the process described above of school-based innovation with support of a school network is one that simultaneously recognizes teachers as experts of the process of curricular innovation while engaging them in a learner community that further develops that expertise and that enables them to create knowledge based on practice. That's Marxism. To create knowledge based on practice. No. No, no, no. This is They're constructing expert knowledge, and that's going to be the so-called unquestionable truth. That is the science that we all have to bow to. And we just saw what happened for three years when we tried to listen to the science, follow the science, shut up and do what the science says, or you'll kill grandma. And it was a catastrophe because these people are frauds. In The Reflective Practitioner, Reimers tells us, a classic book on professional practice and education, 
Donald Schoen. Uh, Schoen, it's spelled like the word for beautiful in German, but I, it doesn't have an umlaut. I don't know what we're doing with this. Schoen, S-C-H-O-N. We're going to say Schoen. It's probably not right. Everybody can make fun of me. I don't know. Donald Schoen argues that the inability to reflect on the knowledge which guides practice, reflect on the knowledge which guides practice, that's speculative philosophy, that's Hegel, that's Marx, okay, is essential to the improvement of professional practice, shown 1983. A reflective practitioner, quote, turns back, turns thought back on action and on the knowing which is implicit in action. Does that not sound like weird Marxist wizardry? Of course it is. That's what this is. While trying to make sense of an action, a reflective practitioner, doesn't that sound good? Don't you want to be reflective? It sounds like you're being good and responsible and thoughtful. That's not what it means. It means that you are judging everything you do against the overarching theory. That's the mirror is the theory. It's the distortion field. It's a funhouse mirror that changes what everything looks like so that it looks like what they need it to look like to do their activism. That's how it works. Okay, so anyway, where were they? A reflective practitioner, quote, reflects on the understandings which have been explicit in his action, understandings which he surfaces. They're already there. He has to surface them. Marxism criticizes, yep, restructures, yep, and embodies in further action. That's the dialectical wheel of praxis and inversion of praxis. Practitioners often guide their practice with problem-solving knowledge that goes beyond the mechanic application of principles or conclusions drawn from the basic science. No shit. It's based in the science. It's based in whatever the higher correct understanding is, the expert knowledge. It's not based in, it's not drawn. See, it has to go beyond the mechanic explanation of principles or conclusions drawn from basic science. This is philosopher king shit. In Hegel, this is Vernunft und Verstand. In critical theory, or sorry, in Marx, this is uh, socialist thought versus uh, bourgeois thought. In the critical theory, this is critical theory versus traditional theory. In Plato, this is scientia uh, split into episteme and dianoia. It's the same thing. The super technocratic experts have better knowledge that goes beyond mere mechanical techni. Whoops, I said it in Greek from Plato. Mere mechanical uh, understanding. Whoops, I said it like for stand in, in, in Hegel. Um mechanistic application of principles or conclusions drawn from basic science. That's what the words here are. It's the same thing. Sean also argues that the failure to comprehend this, in other words, self-consciousness, often leads institutions involved in professional education to base the curriculum on a paradigm which assumes that professional practice is simply the application of the general principles drawn from basic research in the field to problems of practice. You know, like what we think it really is. You go learn some stuff about it, figure out what we've actually learned and then apply it. He's like, no, 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 no. That's a failure to comprehend how things really work. There is a higher scientia. There is a vernunft. There is reason above this. There is critical theory, a second dimension to being an understanding. Then you're ignoring it. There's a Wissenschaftlicher Socialismus here. And it's just a failure to understand that and leads institutions to do stupid things like actually look at evidence and just go where the evidence leads as opposed to, say, looking at evidence and figuring out how to contort it into what the theory says the evidence must say. Mr. Reimers, or Dr. Reimers, Fernando Reimers, says, I share Shun's view that such a paradigm is limited and insufficient to fully support effective professional practice, particularly when professionals encounter, quote, messy problems. So here you have an appeal to complexity. Oh, it's complex. Let us the technocratic experts explain it for you. Oh, we don't really know either, but we're going to guide you through it like we pretend that we do. 
the world is full of fast and velocity and complex problems like the World Economic Forum says, risk assessment, so we're going to have to run the show for you. That's all this is really saying. But are the teachers, I said in my notes, I don't know why I said this, but are the teachers um, in colleges activist enough? Are they Marxist enough? This is what Reimer says. That's how I introduced this quote, so I don't remember what I was writing. It says, some of the most fundamental critiques to university-based professional education concern whether the curriculum provides enough access to knowledge essential for effective practice and whether such university-based professional education remains too theoretical and disconnected from the fields of practice for which it is preparing individuals. Donald Shun in The Reflective Practitioner argues that the classical model that sees practice as a mere application of foundational principles is responsible for this disconnect. So see if you don't have the higher level technocratic view. If you're not a philosopher king or being told what to do by a philosopher king, um, then you aren't going to be able to be a proper teacher. You're going to do something stupid like just follow actual evidence. Um, to end the introduction, he says, similarly, this is the work I have done with the Global Learning Fellows and the National Education Association Foundation. The result of our work includes a curriculum inspired by his book, Empowering Students to Improve the World in 60 Lessons, in which teams of, re of teachers from all U.S. states collaborated designing grade-specific lessons aligned with the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, taught them in their respective schools, and then improved based on their various experiences teaching them. The collaboration over a year relying on the use of communication. In other words, they did experiments on their kids with this education. This collaboration over a year relying on the use of communication technology led to a publication which this group of teachers then used to further advance global education in their schools. This book, meaning the one we're looking at now, is another product of that collaboration. While this approach to professional development is based on peer learning and, network, uh, and networking is capacious, uh, it is relatively rare. Only 44% of the teachers reported participating in it in the OECD study of teachers, this is low in comparison to 70% of teachers who report participating in traditional forms of professional development, such as courses or seminars. So the OECD is involved, and they want to transform teacher education into this new model, and only 44% are doing it, versus 70% of teachers using traditional models. They need to change that. That's their goal. They need to get that the other way. That's a further capture of education at the level of its professionals. He says, I'm delighted to see this book, the product of a group of exemplary public educators in designing lesson plans to help empower students as global citizens available to the public. Again, there's no such thing as a global citizen. They're not empowering your student, your, your children as global citizens. They're empowering, they're, they're brainwashing your kids to accept a global government. It's a completely different program. It stands as an example. And to be activists, by the way, for the SDGs, that's what it means to be. They've said that. That's what it means to be a global citizen is you're an activist for the sustainable development goals of Agenda 2030 of the United Nations. Is that what you're sending your kids to school for? Is to become an activist for the Agenda 2030 sustainable development goals? Is that what you, is that what school's for? That's what global citizen means for them. It stands as an example of the power of teacher collaboration to develop relevant curriculum that prepares students to understand and positively transform. Oh, there's your, there's your hermetic Marxism. The communities in which we live into more inclusive, I'm not kidding, it says this, into more inclusive, just, and inclusive communities. You have to be not just just, but you have to be inclusive twice. I don't know why it says that. 
I just know that it does say that. Okay, so the rest of this book, the rest of this guide, whatever we're going to call it, is the actual lesson plans all the way from top to bottom. Lesson plans for turning schools into sustainable development goal activist mills to turn your children, to brainwash your children into this sustainable development goal mentality and trying to achieve them. So it starts, goes K through 12. We're going to kind of skim through this. I'm not going to drag this out. I actually want this to be fairly quick because this is mostly a point where I'm trying to tell you um, the point of this podcast was to tell you, no, the, the NEA, or at least the NEA Foundation, is now connected to this program. Kindergarten lesson plans. It starts out, lesson plan title, what is hunger? What is hunger? You're going to teach kids about hunger. Summary and rationale. This lesson will teach students about hunger. Students will reflect on what it means to be hungry and explore emotions and behaviors that are tied to hunger. Grade, kindergarten, time frame. 35 to 45 minutes. Subject, which subjects do they shove it into? Social studies, language arts, social emotional learning. Standards, sustainable cities and communities, SDG 11, and peace, justice, and strong communities, SGD, SDG 16. Kind of funny that they don't mention the one that's literally about ending hunger, which is SDG 2. These people are way ahead of their, uh, or way, way connected to their programs. Instructional goal, recognize that there are people in the world, listen to how manipulative this shit is. Recognize that there are people in the world who do not have access to food. This is what they want to do with kindergartners. Describe emotions and behaviors associated with hunger. Hey kids, have you ever been hungry? Doesn't it feel bad? Develop an understanding or empathetic attitude toward those who are facing hunger. Do you see what they're going to do when they manipulate those emotions with the kids? They're going to turn them into activists. Of course they are. For what? Global socialism. For redistribution. Understanding, it says, students will understand that food gives them energy and makes them feel good. Students will learn that some children and families do not have enough food to eat. Students will gain an understanding of what it might feel like to face hunger. That's what they want to do with your kindergartner. Letters, numbers, blocks, dressing up like animals and doing a stupid skit, nap time, I don't know what kids do, stories. No, 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 no. Teach them about starvation. Essential questions. Why is food important? What do you feel like when you're hungry? So manipulative. How would you feel if you didn't have any food to eat when you were hungry? That's what they want to do with your kindergartner. Do you think it's fair that some people in our community do not have food to eat? Oh, now they're going to have a conversation about redistribution and socialism. Student learning objectives. Identify an emotion linked to hunger. Bring it into the realm of feelings. Understand that food helps our bodies. Recognize that hunger is an issue that some children and families struggle with. You say, well, you do want kids to understand that. You don't want Marxists teaching your kids this stuff. Stop falling for it. My God. Yeah, maybe you do want it. So talk to your kids about it. You don't want Marxists teaching your kids about this stuff. They are going to manipulate your kids' emotions to turn them into activists. That's not what you send your kids to school for. And this is United Nations activism. Why is the school doing this? Why is it the Department of Why is the Department of Education? Why is the National Education Association backing this? This isn't appropriate. Assessment. Students will complete a drawing response during activity one. These responses, drawing or verbal, can be used to consider students' understanding. Four, advanced. Students successfully responded to six out of six questions, down to one basic student responded to three or less questions. Sequence of activities. It's broken down to that level. I'm not going to go through all of the lessons this, in this granularity, but I want to go through all of kindergarten so you hear how granular this is. There's more than one lesson per grade. 
Introduction, five minutes. Explain to students that they are going to be learning about food and hunger. Provide the students markers, crayons, and paper. Activity one, 10 minutes. Have students draw their favorite foods on one side of a sheet of paper. Have students turn their paper over and draw pictures to the following questions. How do you feel when you eat your favorite foods? How does your body feel when you are hungry? How would you, excuse me, how would you feel if you didn't have food to eat when you were really hungry? What would you do if you did not have any foods or snacks at home? What activities are hard to do when you're hungry? So manipulative. Activity 2, 20 minutes. Explain to the students that you're going to read them a story about two friends. One of the characters has a refrigerator full of yummy and healthy foods. The other character only has milk and bread. The character and her family is facing an issue called, quote, hunger. This means that they do not have enough food to eat and they do not have money to buy more food. Read aloud Maddie's Fridge by Lewis Brandt. The online version can be found here with a YouTube link. Closing activity, 10 minutes. After the reading, lead a classroom discussion. It is suggested to have students answer the following questions with a partner. These are kindergartners. This technique will engage more learners and allow for more ideas to be shared. While students are partner sharing, the teacher can walk around to different groups to hear the ideas being discussed. How did it make you feel when you learned that Maddie's family did not have enough money to buy food? Why did Maddie ask Sophia to help, uh, sorry, to keep her empty fridge a secret? Shame. Start talking to your kids about shame. It's just, it's your, your kindergartner, your five-year-old. What's the difference between Maddie's fridge and Sophia's fridge? Why did Sophia bring food to school in her backpack? If you were Sophia, what would you do to help Maddie? Mm-hmm. How do you think Sophia feels when she is eating dinner with her family and thinking of Maddie? So manipulative. This is generative themes, frary stuff. You should read the Marxification of Education. This will be crystal clear to you. How would you feel if you didn't have any food to eat when you were hungry? This is called decodification, by the way. How, when Ferrari's model. How did both characters help each other? What activities are hard to do when you're hungry? Bring it back up. Then there's further resources, worksheets, family resource guide, anchor chart paper, writing utensils, blah, 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 blah. Lesson plan two for kindergarten. Who doesn't have food? Summary and rationale. Students will be able to identify hunger in their community and what community resources there are to help eliminate it. Grade kindergarten time, 30 minutes. Subjects, performing arts, social studies, language art, social emotional learning, empathy. Standards. This lesson helps achieve SDGs 11 and 16. Doesn't again mention one or two, which are poverty and hunger. Instructional goal. Students will identify if hunger is present in their community. Understanding. Students will understand that not all children or adults in their community have enough food. These are your kindergartners. I'm saying it again. There are children just like them, just like them in their neighborhood or community who do not have enough to eat. Students will understand that they can help alleviate that problem. Look what they're doing to your kid. Five years old. Essential questions. Who is hungry in our community? How many children do not have enough to eat? Are there local resources to help feed those who are hungry? Student learning objectives. The students will learn that there is a need in their community. Voice that need. Mm-hmm, becoming activists, and be able to explain how they and others can help. Five-year-olds. Assessment. Students 
accurate explanation of how everyone in the story contributed to the soup, the similarities and differences to our, I don't know what that's talking about. I haven't seen that yet. Uh, similarities and differences to our community and how sharing is important are formal assessments. Checking for understanding with proper plate activity can be a formal assessment. No sum, uh, summative assessments for this lesson. And then it goes on and on. What do we have? Motivator. Students will read or watch a story, stone, soup, and then act it out. Okay, that's classic. As a group, students will explain how the main character elicited everyone in the town's participation to create a stone soup and alleviate all their hunger through cooperation. Questions to ask. Who was hungry in this story? How did all the characters participate in feeding the crowd? Did the stone have magical properties? Was the stone magic? How did working together help everyone? Students will discuss how the village in the story is like their community. Basing stone soup from the stories to grow on series, book, a series of books is best, but here are two videos to uh, two good video versions with two YouTube links. Remind students work time 10 minutes. Remind students that food is necessary for humans to survive. Show students a blank paper plate and a grocery ad. Explain to the students that they are going to get six to seven minutes to cut out pictures of food and glue it to their paper plate. After students finish the paper plate activity, have students sit in a circle with their paper plates. Student circles. Every time. Explain to students that one out of every five children in our country struggle with hunger. There you go. Show children this statistic, five-year-olds, by taking away the paper plate from every fifth child in the classroom. Did you hear that? That's what they want to do with your kid at school. Explain to students that one out of every five children in our country struggle with hunger. Show children this statistic because they're five by taking away the paper plate from every fifth child in the classroom. Hold a classroom discussion about this statistic. If teachers want to find statistics for their state, feedingamerica.org can provide all data for all 50 states. Questions asked, how did you feel when your plate was taken away? How did it make you, you know, call it taxes, and then take their plates away, you son of a bitch. How did it make you feel when your classmate's plate was taken away? Do you think it is fair that some children in our community face hunger? Why is it important that every child has a plate of food? How can we help people who are facing hunger? Those are the questions that they're going to use. This is what social-emotional learning looks like in practice, and here it's geared toward the sustainable development goals. Allegedly, 11 and 16, somehow they forgot 1 and 2, which are literally about these things. Closing activity, the teacher will introduce students to local resources that help hungry people in their community. This can prepare students for Lesson 4. I'm not going to go through all the super detail, but lesson three for kindergarten with food and hunger. Why is food a human right? Guess what? Subjects, social studies, geography, language arts, social emotional learning, empathy. Same thing, SDGs 11 and 16. Students will understand lesson one. Students will understand what hunger is. Lesson two, students will, under, will identify if hunger is present in their community. Lesson three, students can explain why food is a human right. Lesson four, students can generate ideas about how to help fight hunger in their community. Lesson five, students will increase awareness about hunger around the world. And so here, uh, understanding, students will understand that all living things need food and water to grow. Just as no one kind of flower or plant deserves food more than another, hmm, we are all connected here on, you know, so poison ivy, definitely equal to corn. Yeah, okay, freaking great. Just as no one kind of flower or plant deserves food more than another, we are all connected here on this earth, and every single one of us deserves food to live, grow, and thrive too. No, I actually disagree. Communists don't deserve shit. 
In this way, food is, people who manipulate your kids don't deserve shit. In this way, food is a human right for all people because each person has value. Remember that communists only define people as people who agree with them. Just keep that in the back of your mind. The students' actions can make their school, neighborhood, and the world better by helping make sure everyone has the food they need. Essential questions. What do plants need to grow? Probably electrolytes. Is it the same for all living things? Is one type of plant greater than another? I don't know. Let's play the poison ivy versus corn game with the kids. Let's see. What do people need to grow? Are any people better than another? Hmm. What can students... Yeah, communists are bad people. There you go. What can students do to help make sure people have the food they need? How can you become an activist kid? Five years old. Five years kindergarten. Student learning objectives. The students will learn that all living things have value and need food and water to grow. Students will learn that they, sh they can share it to help others who are hungry and that all people deserve healthy food to eat. And motivator, same stuff. Ask these manipulative questions, blah, 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 blah. They show, you have this series of pictures. I, I mean, I'm describing pictures of plants that are all withered and plants that are looking healthy, good flowers, dead plants, uh, plants that are dried out, plants that are withering, plants that look horrible, plants that look good. Lesson title, plan title, still kindergarten, hunger around the world. Again, subjects, social studies, geography, language arts, social, emotional learning, empathy, standards. Again, we're in SDGs 11 and 16. Somehow we're not talking about one and two, but whatever. Essentially, I'm going to kind of not go as deep into this here, but um, students will understand that there is food insecurity in our country as well as in countries around the world. Students will, food insecurity, this is five-year-olds. Um, students will understand that sharing food with those who need it is one way to help people be fed. Oh, sharing. Okay, well, who could facilitate it? Well, the government. Essential questions. Is hunger a problem in other countries around the world? What would a world without hunger look like? Well, according to the Bible, it's fake, but okay. How could we make that happen? This question is the beginning of generating ideas about how to fight hunger in the community. Generative themes. Generating ideas. Paulo Ferreri. Okay, we see it here. Student learning objective students will learn that hunger exists in other countries in the, around the world. Students will identify continents that experience the most hunger. Students will learn that one way to help people that do not have enough food is to share what they have. Students will brainstorm ways that we can help people that do not have enough food in our community and abroad. On and on it goes. Same thing. Manipulative story about starving people in Kenya. For your kindergartner, here's pictures of what it looks like in Kenya. How is there enough food for everyone? What does it feel like to share? Does it ever feel hard to share? How did families in this story work together to make sure everyone had enough food? And then conclusion, food is a human right and everyone in the world should have enough food to eat. If we're going to reach the sustainable development goals to help the world, we need to create ways to make things more equitable. That's your kindergarten lesson plans. Now we're going to skim a lot more quickly. I'm just going to touch on these things. First and second grade lesson plans. What are first and second grade dedicated to? Lesson plan title. Take action for peace. Take action for peace. Essential questions. Why is peace important? Without peace, what would the world look like? Would it be the same or different? What does peace mean to you? Can this mean different things for different people? How do communities deal with conflict? What are some peaceful ways to deal with conflict? How can we contribute to make the world a more peaceful place? 
because it says that children can be peacemakers by identifying problems and developing solutions. Children will create a more peaceful world through their actions. Children will understand the role activists play in promoting social justice. These are six and seven-year-olds. Standards. This lesson addresses sustainable development goal number 16. This lesson supports systems thinking competency. In other words, thinking systemically or structurally or in a Marxist way. Students will learn how systems operate six and seven years old to encourage peaceful interaction. This lesson also supports problem solving during role play experiences. The students will identify problems and generate real real world solutions. Yeah, your six and seven year olds are going to just knock that right out of the park. They're not going to be guided into what, you know, the facilitator posing as a teacher thinks are the right kinds of solutions. Opening activity. What does the word peace mean to you? Pair students up, blah, blah, blah. Group movement activity, take a stand. The group will t- create a line with two endpoints, agree and disagree. In this activity, students will find a place on the line to describe their feelings in response to these prompts. Quiet spaces make me calm. I sometimes make mistakes. I feel good when I help people. Listening is hard for me. I notice when someone is left out. I think about how others might feel. I know what peace feels like. And then lots of stuff about peace. It looks like we're going to talk about Martin Luther King. It looks like we're going to talk about literally tree huggers. It shows people hugging a tree to protect a tree. Activism is the heading there. Activism. Activism is the use of direct action to... These are six and seven-year-olds. Activism is the use of direct action to achieve an end either for or against an issue. Example, when people tie themselves to trees to protect the forest from being cut down, it is an example of activism. Isn't that fun? Activist, vocabulary words, activist, activism, taking action. Those are your six and seven-year-olds. Those are the vocabulary words that they're suggesting. An activist is a person who campaigns for some kind of social change. Example, someone who's actively involved in a protest or political social cause can be called an activist. Taking action. The process or state of acting or of being active. Example, when you participate in a march protesting the closing of a neighborhood or library, you are taking action with a photograph of children marching holding signs in a protest. The process of taking action or being active. Example, when you participate, six and seven-year-olds, in a march protesting the closing of a neighborhood library, you are taking action. This is what you send your kids to school for? Share stories and photos of five global activists with a brief overview of each. Malala Yousafzai, uh, Cesar Chavez, Isatu Sise, Karim Wasafi, uh, and uh, Wangari Matai. I don't know who these people are, and I they give little profiles. I don't give a shit. Um, I know who Cesar Chavez is. That's the only one. Okay. And, yeah, I, I don't care. Um this is what first and second grade are supposed to look like. And then here we have a couple pages down a worksheet you're supposed to print out for them. Group name, blank, date, blank. How can you make the world a more peaceful place? Bullet point. This is literally, I'm reading this word for word. Bullet point. As a group, look at the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals. Circle the one you want to work on and talk about the problem and what you can do. And then there's the graphic of the 17 Sustainable Development Goals with the wheel as the O that I keep telling you should go look up. The UN logo, 17 goals to transform our world. There they are. No poverty, zero hunger, blah, 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 blah. Write and draw the issue and how you would like to fix 
the problem. Literally, explicitly worksheet involving a picture of the 17 Sustainable Development Goals telling kids to first and second grade to pick which ones they want to work on. That's, that's the program. Third and fourth grade lesson plans. We'll skim a little bit more. Internet access for all, a question of equity. Okay. And then all the same, it's all the same. Why is access to the internet an essential utility? So who are we dealing with now? We're talking about eight and nine-year-olds. How does access to the internet contribute to a quality 21st century education? How communities, how can communities increase internet access for residents? Blah, blah, blah. Okay, we'll skip down a little further. Fifth grade lesson plans. A cubed awareness advocacy action. Students will learn about how to access clean water and other resources, impacts global communities. Uh, so there's a lot about water, by the way, in this. Water, water, water. Um, access to clean water impacts the sustainable development of a community. Students will generate proposed solutions. This is fifth grade, so what are we up to, like 10? 10 years old now? Essential questions. How does access to clean water contribute to a sustainable community? How is clean water essential for an everyday life? How can people promote the need for access to clean water? I don't know if they start asking them manipulative questions about what's it like to be thirsty. How do you use water in the morning, afternoon, or evening? How does your family use water? What are things, this is data gathering. Uh, what are things you could do uh, that use water that you might not think of? What kinds of foods do you cook with water? What kinds of drinks are made with water? How do you use water to make your body or environment cleaner? Weird environmental cartoons. Um, why? One of the prompt questions. What do you notice about the word, words in the cartoon? No one cares. What do you wonder about why the United Nations had to create this goal? So direct. Kids are to be citizens of the United Nations. Um, lots and lots of this stuff about this for fifth graders. Sixth grade lesson plans, the value of water, use it, abuse it, and lose it. I'm not going to go through that one particularly. You get the, you get the gist. We had water equity, and now we have this huge thing, all these games to play <clears throat> about the role of water and how it can be used, how to be advocates, activists, etc. Uh, seventh grade lesson plans, student-led community needs assessment, become activists. This is based off of target 16.6, develop effective, accountable, and transparent institutions uh, at all levels. 16.7, ensure responsive, inclusive, participatory, and representative decision-making at all levels. 16.8, broaden and strengthen the participation of developing countries and the institutions of global governance. And 16.B, Promote and enforce non-discriminatory laws and policies for sustainable development. Not because they're right or wrong, but for sustainable development. Summary and rationale. Provide an overview of this lesson. Explain how it fits into the entire curriculum. This lesson encourages 7th graders to examine what is essential for effective and safe schools across the world and consider the role of school as an, quote, accountable and inclusive institution. By the end of the lesson, students will be able to explain what a sustainable development goal is, Identify the components of sustainable development goal number 16. Audit their own community as a strong institution. This is what they're going to do with your 12-year-old in 7th grade. Um, lots of the same kinds of questions. What, why do schools need accountability? What would education look like without accountability? Blah, blah, blah. 
social-emotional learning objectives. The learner is able to reflect on the role of strong, effective institutions such as school and the meaningfulness in a peaceful society, and on and on it goes. Eighth grade lesson plans. Again, I'm just skimming this. I encourage you all to read it yourself. Youth-led social activism. They're getting quite explicit, right? Summary and rationale, if young people understand that their actions can make a difference, they may be motivated to bring about change in their school or community that brings more equity. Learning about activism, they're, they're not shy about what they're doing with your kids. Learning about activism will allow students to better understand the injustices they and others around them face. Social issues like racism, inequality, violence, bullying, etc. are real problems they experience every day, or they'll be taught to believe that anyway. These are important skills to prepare them for real life. Do you see? Do you see what's going on here? UN goal 16, all over this one, blah, blah, blah. Essential questions. What is justice? What's worth fighting for? What are the roles and responsibilities of citizens and government regarding issues of social justice? Not what are the roles and responsibilities of citizens and government, question mark. No, just regarding issues of social justice. And we're going to turn them into activists, eighth graders. What are the responsibilities of the individual regarding issues of social justice? Again, not what are your responsibilities as a person with regard to social justice? How do you become more committed to the cult? How do citizens participate effectively in bringing about social change and social justice? That's eighth grade. That's the goal. Understanding individual citizens can and do access power and affect and affect change through participation in civic society. Individual citizens and groups participating in movements and organizations continually shape and reshape society. Knowledge of the past helps one understand the present and makes decisions about the future. This is so Marxist. Examining social and civic issues helps expand one's understanding of the world, its people, and themselves. Recognizing a diversity of viewpoints, meaning Marxism, benefits all. And then tons of learning objectives. How to take local action. And actually understand how local action connects with regional, national, global issues. Students will be able to show empathy and solidarity for those suffering from injustice in their own country as well as in other countries. In other words, they will be in the cult. Students will be able to ask meaningful questions, find information, drawing conclusions, and reflect on possible solutions relevant to an important social issue. I love how they are still... I mean, there's been like 10 grammatical errors. I haven't pointed them out. This is an education document for fuck's sake. Students will be able to present research based on evidence that considers multiple perspectives and draws reasonable conclusions concerning a social issue, important social issue. Which ones are important? Well, we know which ones are important, the leftist ones. And on and on it goes, right? Students will be able to articulate their personal and collective responsibility as citizens relevant uh, relative to issues of social justice, oddly ending with a question mark. Another grammatical error. Students will be able to act individually or collectively in response to local, regional, or global issue. In response to A, they didn't mess that one up. Local, regional, or global issue in order to impact change. So this is turning your 8th grader into a change agent. That's the goal of 8th grade education according to the SDG Global Education Program. Remember, we're not talking about some faraway organization like UNESCO anymore, which is not far away at all, by the way. We're talking about the National Education Association Foundation. Ninth grade lesson plan, making waves, discussing water and quality of life. Some more about water. There's a lot about water. A lot about water. Um, I'm going to skip this one for brevity's sake and because it's just tedious. There's good stuff in all this. You should read it. 
10th grade lesson plan, fighting the garbage monster, a lesson in two parts. So now we're going to learn about garbage and water, garbage and water. I talked to Michael Fallon, my friend, Michael Fallon, you guys all know I'm friends with Michael Fallon. Michael Fallon said one of the things that perked him up in the first place, I got him paying attention to what's going on is how many of the professional meetings he was going to way back, 2000, you know, seven, six, seven, eight, nine, that were about water and trash, water and trash. Those are the big issues that all the big kind of players were going to basically gather power around. How do we solve issues of water and trash, water and trash, water and trash? And here we have them high school up through, um, well, I mean, again and again, we've seen water and now we have water and trash. Uh, through ninth and 10th grade. 11th grade lesson plan, show me the clean water. We get more of the same thing. 11th graders, so your first three years in high school, you're going to learn to do all kinds of water and trash sustainability learning. 12th grade lesson plan, developing sustainable cities. The sustainable sustainability of our neighborhoods, communities, and cities are the responsibility of each citizen of the world. There is no citizen of the world. There is no citizen of the, no such thing. There are people of the world. There are residents of the world. There are no citizens of the world. The world doesn't have a government. It is imperative that as global citizens, well, that's good because those don't fucking exist. So that means it doesn't mean anything. It is imperative that as global citizens, we preserve our planet for ourselves and for future generations. This can be achieved on a local level with the goal of building and maintaining sustainable communities by getting students to recognize the gaps in their own cities it is a way to begin the process of sustainability at the grassroots, that's activism, baby, at the grassroots level. This is your capstone, your senior capstone. This is where, where it all goes. This is the whole point. Instructional goals, students will connect with United Nations Sustainable Development Goal 11 in their own community. Students will research and identify how their communities already are working towards sustainability. Students will identify possible solutions to make their communities more sustainable. Understanding students will review sustainable development goal number 11 and understand that it is their responsibility to advocate for sustainable cities and a sustainable earth. Standards SDG 11, which reads, make cities and human settlements inclusive, safe, resilient, and sustainable. None of those words are safe. I mean, one of them technically is safe. I did that as kind of a joke on purpose. All of those words indicate something bad. Inclusion, safety, resilience, sustainability. Those are all activist words. And so now your 12th grader is going to be brought into watch a UN video on sustainable cities and communities so we can all live in some kind of a smart city nightmare. Look at the sustainable development goal 11 targets. Examine gaps in your own city. Brainstorm two to three possible solutions to make your city more sustainable. Students research sustainability efforts in one other city in another country of their choosing. These are the kinds of projects that they're assigning for your seniors or capstone after teaching the activists all the way up. They have a secondary STEM lesson plan as well. So within the STEM program, they are offering a extra lesson plan for secondary means high school, secondary STEM lesson plan, sustainable cities. In this lesson, students will design solutions to make cities more sustainable. As there are multiple targets within this goal, each high, uh, high school students will be given uh, a choice as to their grouping scope and approach to creating working prototype, a working prototype using an engineering design process. Sounds fun, very STEMI, but it's how can we design solutions to improve urban quality of life? How can we optimize urban infrastructures to minimize the impact of cities on human health? How can we ensure access uh, 
It just says, how can we ensure access fresh, nutritious foods for all? So there we, that one, they actually messed that one up. The sustainable development goal number 11 is the target. Tons of student learning objectives, all sustainable cities, sustainable cities, sustainable cities. That's what they want people to live in. That's what they want your kids to be brainwashed into learning to make. Secondary art lesson plan. So high school art class. Playground Utopias, that's the lesson plan title, designing safe, accessible, sustainable parks, playgrounds, and communal spaces. Students will explore how artists, designers, and architects create work that shapes or impacts public awareness of a social issue. Sustainable parks and cities. Is that like where they put a giant butt plug up as a statue in London? Is that what they're talking about? Is it? Is it a, like a 30-foot butt plug as a statue? Is that how architects? artists, designers, and architects create work that shapes or impacts public awareness of a social issue. Um, is it when nurses pretend that don't have anything to do at a hospital, pretend that we're in a gigantic pandemic and like reenact scenes from Titanic? Is that art, artists, designers, and architects creating work that shapes or impacts public awareness of a social issue? I'm just trying to figure out what they mean. They will brainstorm to identify a problem impacting living environments at a local, domestic, or global scale. Maybe they can go back to their childhood childhood lesson that they had early in the book and tie themselves to trees. Oh, that would be cool. Students will collaborate using the creative process to envision design or improve the identified concern. They will investigate how artists consider health and safety concerns when designing spaces in addition to the materials recycled, it says in parentheses, used. Artists don't Design spaces. What the hell? Artists designing spaces and they consider health and safety concerns. Yeah, I bet they do. And so students can use instructional goals. Students will use the artistic process to further and understand and analyze the global goals for sustainable development. Goal number 11, sustainable cities and communities. They're really, really bent on this. And there's lots of stuff here. I'm not going to go through all of it. Understanding people create and interact with objects, places, and design that define, shape, enhance, and empower their lives. Artists play a powerful role in shaping our understanding of these concepts, especially in a global context. Maybe what they should do is erect a 500-foot butt plug and put it on the United Nations building. Or maybe they can put it in the EU Parliament. That would be great. It would really bring attention to what's actually happening there. Maybe that's what they should do. Artists designing safe spaces. Look, the United Nations, giant butt plug. That's a great idea. That's fucking fabulous. God, I hate these people. Global Citizenship Leadership Fellows 2019 class bios to end, and it talks about all of these people. We could name them. I'm not going to read all of their names. There are a whole bunch of them. Um, they're all over the place. They're all over the place. Second grade educator in Memphis, Tennessee, high school social studies educator in Elliottsburg, Pennsylvania, high school social studies educator in Hawthorne, California, high school drama performing arts educator in Louisville, Kentucky. They're all over the place. STEM educator, Columbia, South Carolina, middle school social studies educator, Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, middle school ESOL educator, Hollywood, Florida. Elementary school kindergarten educator, Cheyenne, Washington, or sorry, Wyoming, Cheyenne, Wyoming. High school science educator, Omaha, Nebraska, all over the place, all over the place. Elementary first grade educator, Montpelier, Vermont. High school Spanish language educator, St. Louis Park, Minnesota. High school social studies educator, Aberdeen, South Dakota. You hear in all these like super liberal states, right? Middle school social studies educator, Seward, Alaska. Elementary school, fourth grade educator, Tuscan, 
Tuscan. It says Tuscan, Arizona. I'm willing to bet it's supposed to be Tucson. I'm just going to bet it's supposed to be Tucson, but maybe there is a Tuscan, Arizona that I don't know about. Maybe. Fishers, Indiana, Marlboro, New Hampshire, Japan, Rockwall, Texas. Is it Rockwall, Texas or Rockwell, Texas? I don't know. Hotlanta, Georgia, Kansas City, Kansas, Mount Hope, West Virginia, Brooklyn, New York, Altoona, Iowa, Asheville, North Carolina. Well, there's a big surprise. Everywhere. Everywhere. Salt Lake City, Utah, Rogers, Arkansas, Augusta, Maine, Wilmington, Delaware. Maybe it's Joe Biden. Is it Joe Biden? It's Jill Biden. I'm just kidding. It's not. It's not. That was a joke. Plummer, Idaho. All over the place. So then they close this thing out with this um, kind of like little appeal on the back. I assume this is the back cover of the book, but in the documents, the thing. In this increasingly flattened world. One-dimensional, right? There's your Marcuse reference. In this increasingly flattened world, learning to think critically about global affairs is of utmost importance. In other words, in this one-dimensional world, we need to think in critical theory, which is a second dimension of thought. That is a direct appeal to Herbert Marcuse. If you know what you're looking at, that's there. In this increasingly flattened world, learning to think critically about global affairs is of utmost importance. Students need to learn how local and global affairs are interdependent. They need to be able to identify shared interests and to collaborate with others across national borders. Twelve lessons to open classrooms and minds to the world. There aren't twelve. There's a whole bunch of them. There's like five for kindergarten. What the hell are you talking about? Is a result of a collaborative effort organized by the NEA Foundation to support outstanding teacher leaders in developing 21st century global curriculum that is aligned with the United Nations, UN, Sustainable Development Goals, a universal call to action to end poverty, protect the planet, and ensure that all people enjoy peace and prosperity. This collection of K-12 lesson plans is created by the NEA Foundation Global Learning Fellows is an easily accessible guide that provides educators with the essential tools to be able to prepare students for active global citizenship. That's activism and what they mean by global citizenship, which means activism and completing and achieving the Sustainable Development Goals by 2030. Clock's ticking. It's coming. This is going to be everything in education. They have two uh, two quotes here, um, testimonial quotes uh, from Sharon Gallagher Fishbaugh, former chair NEA Foundation Board of Directors, 2009 Utah State Teacher of the Year, says the NEA Foundation Global Learning Fellowship inspires, educates, and opens minds and hearts to limitless learning opportunities. I have no doubt that their students will experience deep and permanent lessons on how to live well in this global society. And we have Kevin Anderson, chair NEA Foundation Board of Directors, senior vice president of national partnerships from EverFi Inc., the NEA Foundation Global Learning Fellowship is a gift to us all. I witnessed how fellows ask questions and use their wonderful learning community, each other, no incest happening there, no intellectual incest at all, to digest invaluable lessons and experiences. This will undoubtedly enhance their worldview and simply enrich the, their leadership in the classroom from a global perspective. Doesn't even bother to put a period on the end of the sentence. I love NEA Foundation documents. This is where education is going. I'm telling you, this is an I told you so podcast. In this increasingly flattened world, learning to think critically about global global affairs is of the utmost importance. So we're going to be Marcusian. We're going to gear towards sustainability. And the point is going to be 
in developing a 21st global 21st century global curriculum that is aligned with the United Nations United Nations Sustainable Development sorry the United Nations UN Sustainable Development Goals which are, are to be accomplished by 2030 is 2023 and so I urge you to take quite seriously the prospect that global citizenship global citizenship education and in particular the achieve the specific goal of teaching your children or brainwashing your children to become activists to achieve the 17 sustainable development goals to transform our world of the United Nations Agenda 2030 is going to be a top educational priority in the coming one to two years. I think by the end of 2023, it's going to be ubiquitous throughout schools. And most people, because they are not paying attention, they don't listen, and they don't believe a damn thing anybody says when they point to this stuff, are going to be sitting there with their thumbs up their asses wondering how in the hell this happened. I'm trying to stop that. It's January 2023. If by December 2023, very few people are sitting there baffled, as some of our leading lights on um, social commentary constantly are, could you imagine being like that you follow somebody for social commentary and they tell you literally almost every day that they're baffled about what's going on, that they're so confused? How could this be? I'm so confused. I'm baffled. And that's the person you keep going back to because they seem sane and reasonable. They're not sane and reasonable. They're stupid. They're not listening. They don't know what's going on. Get a grip. They're not very smart. They're very smart people. They're baffled. They're confused. Anyway, I digress. Maybe that's a personal thing. Point is, Agenda 2030 and its sustainable development goals are going to be a top priority in education in the coming one to two years. I'm telling you that now. I'm showing you documents. This is the National Education Association Foundation. So the charitable foundation attached to the largest teachers union in the country telling you that the whole thing that we've been talking about from UNESCO about moving education into the, achieving the SDGs under a brand name of raising global citizens, which is that's what it's going to mean to be a global citizen is somebody who achieves the SDGs for the globalists, uh, is going to be, a again, a top priority in education in the coming year. At longest, two years. End of 24, this has to be in place. That would leave them with five years till 2030. It's, this is going to be so fast, it's going to make people's heads spin. You can get ahead of it. You can understand it. Um, I, will, I would really encourage you to look at this document. I would really encourage you to look into global citizenship education for yourself. Those terms are easy to look up. You're going to see Paulo Ferreri's name everywhere. Read the Marxification of Education. Understand what that means. You're going to see connections to UNESCO, the OECD, the World Economic Forum, United Nations, over and over and over and over again. There are reasons for this. It's all comprehensible. So go check it out. Global Citizenship Education, Education for the SDGs, SEL for SDGs, Social Emotional Learning. Go look into how all of these things are tied together, that these things are a purposed program to brainwash your kids, to turn them into activists, to achieve the giant global agenda that's called Agenda 2030. Sounds like conspiracy theory, but isn't from the United Nations. Um, thank you for listening, and we'll do another one soon.